Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. On the Good Life Podcast, today we have Christiana Hale with us. She has just published a book called Deeper Heaven, A Reader's Guide to C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. And if you are not familiar with the Ransom Trilogy, you may know it by its, uh, shall we say, secular name, The Space trilogy, and we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully talk about why it's called uh, preferably one over the other, but she's written that. She is a graduate of New St. Andrews in Moscow, Idaho. She teaches at Logos School up there, and Christiana, we're very thankful that you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. What is it that interested you in C.S. Lewis? Where did your appreciation for him start? That's a great question. I, I think, as with most people, it started when I was fairly young with the Chronicles of Narnia. I, I remember, I have very fond memories of my mom reading uh, the books to us, to my sister and I, when we were, you know, getting ready for bed, she'd always have a book that she read to us at bedtime. And so that was my first, uh, we didn't know that he wrote anything else for a very long time, um, probably until I was in you know, junior or senior year of high school. It was fairly late. My, my family, I was homeschooled all the way through um, K through 12. And we didn't really discover more of the classical Christian education till later on. So, uh, so Lewis was kind of, he was the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, he was the Narnia guy uh, for a very long time. And it wasn't until uh, later on that I read some of his other books and realized Oh, he was, he wasn't actually a children's author. That wasn't his day job, so to speak. It wasn't his, it wasn't actually what he was mainly known for at the time during his life, um, for the majority of his life. So I read, I think I read uh, Mere Christianity, uh, possibly in high school, and then Till We Have Faces, which totally threw me for a loop. I was, I loved it, but I was very, very um, befuddled. Uh, shall we say, by it. So, um, but then I actually did not read the, the Space Trilogy till college all the way through. I tried to read it when I was younger and I gave up, as I think most, a lot of people do, give up um, partway through. I think I maybe made it a chapter or two in, so before before giving up. And then when I got to college, it was assigned as a, as a class uh, reading and I was actually a little bit disappointed at first. Like, oh no, I have to read it now. <laughs> I have to get all the way through. Um, and I'm forever grateful for that because being you know, forced to read all the way through, I got past that hump that I had hit when I was younger and just totally fell in love with it. And having a teacher who loved it as well and was kind of guiding us and pointing out um, some of the, the important themes and elements in them, I just, I, I kind of, knew right away that I wanted to do some more work on that book. I wanted to explore it more and understand it 
better. So, so Narnia, I, I credit Narnia with introducing me to Lewis, as a lot of people do, and I still have a very fond place in my heart for those books. I think they are a good template for anyone who wants to write children's books as as demonstrating how how deep children's books can be. They, they don't have to be. Um, they're not simple. They're simple, but they're deep. And so that's just amazing to me. So I still, still very much love Narnia. Good, good. So your book, Deeper, Deeper Heaven, that has a lot of meaning, just, just Mm -hmm. that, that phrase, deeper heaven. So what is deeper heaven? heaven as it is portrayed by C.S. Lewis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So it's funny, I love, I ended up loving the title, even though we actually t- took a while to come <laughs> to get that, get to that title. I had a different title at first and, and we were just looking for something a little more, I don't know, concise, a um, little bit, mine was a little original. I can't even remember what it was now, which which proves that it wasn't a good title because I can't remember what it was. Um, but so we wanted something a little bit more concise and, and tight, but also that communicated um, on multiple levels. I think good titles do that. So the first, the first level is just that I'm hoping this book will t- take you deeper into what Lewis was actually doing in the trilogy that we go beyond just a surface surface level um, survey, but that we, we do dig down into some of the themes and elements that he was trying to uh, convey through that trilogy. But also that one of the central things that he was, I think, trying to um, introduce to his readers is this concept of the heavens, that it's not space, it's the heavens, which is how the Bible speaks about it and how writers and thinkers for centuries would speak about it and write about it and, and understand it. They wouldn't call it space. That was a, that's a very modern term for um, what we see when we go out on a clear night and look up at the night sky. Um, space is a, is a very modern term and has a lot of modern assumptions attached to it. And, and so it's, and it's beyond just the scientific accuracy. Lewis loved the, the poetry and the, uh, everything connected with the word heavens, right? When we say the heavens declare the glory of God, you know, that's what the Bible says. And what does that actually mean? And what is the entire worldview and, philosophy and theology and everything, your, your view of the cosmos and um, what it contains and who created it, it's all connected with what you call things. And so his, uh, his project, I think, mainly was to recover that older vision of the cosmos. And part of that involves calling it the heavens as opposed to space, at least in certain contexts. And so I, I really enjoy having that in the title because I think it hints at uh, many of the things that I talk about in the book that I think were really important to Lewis and that he communicated through this story. Just the term space itself mm-hmm. seems to connote emptiness, something is is dead Mm -hmm. that there's not life there versus the way that scripture talks about 
the heavens mm-hmm. being yes. something that is alive that they are that they declare and that word is present tense they are declaring they do declare god's glory and our perspective n- not blaming the scientific revolution but our enlightened perspective is that it's because we can see all of those things we can see stars Mm -hmm. and planets and and such that there must not be anything there other than what we can Mm -hmm. visually take in yes and and and, and c.s lewis drawing on medievals uh medieval thinkers has a different perspective so so I struggle with knowing where to go on this, whether to ask you to introduce the trilogy first or to give a, a, an overview of you know the medieval cosmos. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll let you just take that in w- whatever direction you think would be better. I, n- I know how you take it in the book. That yes. You, you talk about the cosmos itself. So maybe we could do it that way. Then. Yeah, I generally do think it, it is helpful to for readers that don't already have that background and that understanding of of the medieval cosmology that there are a few key components that I do think it it is very helpful to have at least a basic understanding of as before you head into reading the trilogy, um, which is why I think as you alluded to in my book, I do have a few introductory chapters before I just jump into the first book out of the silent planet to kind of give a basic kind of foundation for this is the framework that Lewis is hanging all of these stories on. And obviously at some point I I do think if people are really, really interested reading CS Lewis's the discarded image is hugely helpful. That was where I, I, I learned most about the medieval medieval cosmology and particularly Lewis's understanding of that medieval cosmology and his love for it. That was honestly the kind of the breakthrough book for me. When I read that book, I start, I underlined it. It's my copy's falling apart. It's completely uh, marked up because I was just, I just like, Oh, things started clicking for me um, in, in terms of understanding the trilogy. So, but not everyone has time to go, go read this other book and that book and do all that research for yourself. So that was part of the inspiration for the reader guide is trying to pull all those things together that I had learned through my research into kind of one accessible place. But the, the cosmology, I think, um, isn't so much, it's not so much the physical layout of that cosmology that Lewis thinks is important. I think um, it's interesting it, as an artifact, you know, he sees it kind of the actual physical arrangement of the planets and how they work together and how they intersect and and the order of them and all of that. He is interested in that as an artifact, as you might be interested in a, you know, beautiful vase in a museum or something like that. It's very, and it tells you something about the people who made it. I think as far as utilizing it and what he saw as the important parts of it, um, are more the emotional and imaginative effects that that way of seeing the universe has on um, 
the people themselves. And so that's, I think, what he's trying to kind of get at in his, in the trilogy is those sorts of, sorts of things. So the fact that the universe is abundantly personal, it's bursting with personality, it's been created by a personal God, and he has filled it with beings um, that we can see, both that we can see and that we can't see, which we know is also true from the Bible, right? Um, there's right. all sorts of stories, particularly in the Old Testament, that as Christians, we sometimes seem to get a little apologetic about, you know, shy away, shy away from all of the the angel stories or or that sort of thing. And right. But it's there, it's there. And he tells us, and, and you know, in the New Testament, we have the birth of Jesus and the angels came down and were singing and um, the star led the shepherds to the stable. And you ask, well, how in the world did, what, did a star lead them to a particular house in a particular city without burning up the entire planet? And, and I think um, Lewis argues, as do other theologians throughout history, is that that was an angel, right? It was a star, but it was an angel at the same right. time, which is, is, you know, again, very um, kind of, foreign to us as moderns we want to somehow try to massage it a little bit to make it a little more acceptable and uh, to our modern scientific minds and so lewis again he did he wasn't necessarily uh, arguing okay we need to go back to a medieval science or we need we to kind of rewind the clock and undo all of the progress in the scientific realm or the things we've learned due to you know advanced instruments and telescopes and things like that. He's not arguing that we have to just, you know, no, we have to forget everything we've learned and go back. He's arguing that we've lost something in that process that we should regain. Not that we, and that we should try to hold these things together. Not that we have to abandon our scientific knowledge, but that in gaining that knowledge, we have abandoned something uh, far more potent, which is our understanding of the way God created the world, which is far more than just atoms bouncing around and chemicals and, and what we can see with the naked eye. I think, as he says in, in the voyage of the John Treader, I believe um, Eustace says, you know, I thought stars were just balls of flaming gas. And the star says, even in your world, that's what they are made of, not what they are. Right. Um, that a thing is more than what it is made of, um, which I think, again, large part, not just scientific revolution, but evolu the evolution, um, evolutionary um, theory and all of that. That is what has, you know, I think, stripped the modern scientific realm of much of its connection to uh, reality, honestly, as they were seeing things as disconnected from the spiritual realm and from a creator, which changes your entire perspective on everything. I remember years ago, so, so the first place I ever encountered the, that, <clears throat> that quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is, it has remained with me. And, and sadly, I did not actually read the Chronicles of Narnia until I was 21 years old. And I, I checked it. I was my first year teaching in a public school, and I was single. And so I found them, and I said, I, I've heard of this. So I, I checked them out uh, from our school's library. And I, I, I checked all of them out within about a week and a half or so. And... <laughs> 
and of course that they were phenomenal. But I, I, the first place I encountered that quote from from the star, I think his name is Ramandu or something mm, like yes, that. Yes, yeah, I think so. Is uh, R.C. Sproul actually <laughs> referenced it in either a, a sermon or a lecture or a book, and and so that pointed me to that quote. But I, I always thought, but how can this be? How how can because I, I was taught, you know, good little public school student that I was in, in high school, that stars are just that. They're, they're flaming balls of gas. So they're out there. And there's so much, again, I, I come back to the, the word life. There, there's so much life in this perspective that it, that is not there from a purely materialist perspective. And and I can remember in reading various points in the Chronicles of Narnia, but then later on in, in, in the, the trilogy, at point of being joyful, because something he was Lewis was saying something I knew that, that resonated in a deeper part of me than just my mind. And I really appreciated that. Yes, I think um, a good example, obviously, is to try to understand it. it I mean, we, I don't think we can truly wrap our main minds around it. Um, it's just, it can be beyond us. But people, you know, hum, human beings looking around about at the people that we have relationships and realizing as Christians, we know that people have been created in the image of God. And we know that um, another person is more than just the chemicals and the enzymes and the proteins that make up their physical physical body and so how can how can a star be the same way well i mean in a similar way not exactly obviously they are not you know they're not people up there floating in the sky but that there are multiple there's layers to reality and we know that from various stories in in the bible we know that when in the old testament the story of oh i'm gonna mess it up I always mix up Elijah and Elisha, <laughs> uh, I, um, but the one with the, the flaming army, right? That his servant, he prays that his servant's eyes would be opened, that he could see yes. what's really Elijah, there. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to say the wrong one. Um, but he's basically, you know, a curtain has been pulled back and we're seeing a layer deeper into another, you know, it's still the same world, but there's, there's layers there. Or when uh, Christ comes back after his resurrection and he walks through the wall, Right, we know he's yeah. not a ghost because he just told Thomas to touch him, right? And he eats and he drinks and he we know he's not ghostly and yet he just walked through the wall. How is that possible? Well, he's clearly more real than the wall and he's existing on a different plane in a way, right? He's he's died and returned, he's resurrected, he's more solid more real than than we are even and that's obviously the hope that we have in for our resurrections as well um so there's all sorts of stories but it's it's very hard to wrap our minds around and especially i think that we have been far more easily affected by our culture's um again materialistic reductionistic mindset than we often realize and so that's that's a large uh large part behind the book, um, my book in particular, is I think it was really important to Lewis. And so I obviously want to 
line out how important that was to him. And I think it has a direct impact on our daily lives. It's not just something uh, that kind of affects our mental uh, mental life, but our interactions with the world around us and with people and how we, how we read and how we write and how we work and how we interact with nature. And it really does, I think, go all the way down. So um, that is something that I talk a lot about and comes up again and again in the book, because I think it was really important to Lewis as well. So the, the quote by Gerard Manley Hopkins, that the world is charged with the grandeur of God is more than merely saying this is a really pretty planet in spots mm-hmm. it, it 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 is indeed charged with god's god's life his being uh, so so that that it, it it gives it greater anticipation and you know just considering the things that you touched on you know because lewis was a and he would admit it, I, I believe, uh, a, a good Christian neoplatonist. And he, he had a strong appreciation for Platonism in a, you know, w- from a Christian perspective, n- not the, you know, not the Platonism that, that is agnostic. But again, like when you were talking about Jesus' resurrected body being more real. Yes. Yeah. Than what what was what we would physically see and touch, like doors and things like that. So, oh boy, there's so much to 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 talk about with that. But I I, I want to try to just actually stay on your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not not that no. there's not other places we could go with this because he is so fascinating in on so many levels. But let's talk about Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, that's the first book of the Space Trilogy. And and you don't have to give us a, you know, a, a precise summary of everything. If you want to just talk about just the entire trilogy it, it itself, just to give a summary of that, it's called, you know, it, the Ransom Trilogy is the way it's described in your title. And, and I know I've heard Doug Wilson say it's a it's a better way of, uh, of describing it. So so tell us mm-hmm. what is the Ransom Trilogy and, and, and why is it well named? Yeah, that. um, So Lewis himself, I um, never actually gave it a a name. I think he might refer to it, and I I should know this. I think I do. It's just somewhere back in the recesses of my brain. Uh, I think he referred to it once as his cosmological trilogy. Um, Other, other elsewhere, maybe the cosmic trilogy. Which, so that could be a good name for it. Um, More commonly, obviously, it's the space trilogy, which I think is is erroneous and somewhat ironic, though I think Lewis would probably laugh about it. Um, honestly, he'd probably be amused by the fact that so many people have kind of missed missed the mark on that one. Um, since at the end of Out of the Silent Planet, he specifically says that, um, you know, if we have caused some of our readers to shift their perspective from space back to the heavens, then we will have been successful. Like this was kind of the point. And he says that in several letters too, that that was his favorite thing about the books and and kind of what he was trying to do. So definitely think 
you know, space trilogy is not the best term for it, though, as it's been called that over the years, I still will refer to the, to it um, in that way occasionally just for ease of communication if I, if you know, don't want to have to right. take the time to explain. I buy space trilogy, I, you know, or buy ransom trilogy, I mean the space trilogy. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll slip into that. But I do think the ransom trilogy is a good... Uh, nickname for it because I I think that Ransom, who is the main character of the trilogy, I would argue his journey through the three books is is a central part of understanding uh, what Lewis is doing. With that, I think Ransom is the most important character, as besides um, the character of I would argue you know Christ himself is very present though never explicitly named. Um, Lewis works works that in there very clearly, but Ransom is the clearest Christ figure, even by his, you know, his name itself is, uh, right. comes up as, is very important. Uh, so I think it's a good shorthand name for it. it. It does give Ransom the, his due place, I think, in the series, but um, very, very Simply, I think it's kind of a bit of a there and back again story to borrow a Tolkien, a Tolkien right. phrase in that each each of the books is a, is a certain kind of journey with the third book entirely taking place on Earth. So he goes to he goes to Mars in the first book and then Venus in the second and then uh, the whole book stays on Earth in the third in that he's strength. And but it all it all uh, kind of focuses on uh, Ransom himself. I think even in the third book, which I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but the third book is the is the one that is not told from Ransom's perspective. We jump between two characters, Mark and Jane Studdick, who are a married couple. And so one might argue, well, isn't Ransom a little less central than to that third book? And um, I talk about this a bit in in Deeper Heaven, but I think he's still very central because he has a central role to play, which is slightly different in the third book, which is why I think Lewis takes a different different point of view on it. Um, but he still has a very significant role, um, particularly in reuniting uh, Mark and Jane. Uh, in their in their marriage at the end of the book, so um, I don't want to give too much away, you know. So because sure. you do have to go <laughs> go read the book. So, um, yes. but uh, that so I I do every um, in every book there's a particular arc I think to Ransom's character development that is really fascinating, and I love every time I notice something new, it's just super exciting. It's very hard though, because I always want to add it to my books. Like, Oh, wait, wait, can we add another chapter? It's too late. It has gone to the printers. Um, but it's, it's, I think there's, Oh yes, (laughs) perhaps, perhaps. Um, but there's only, which is great though. It's exciting because I, I do think that it would be almost impossible to write a comprehensive, entirely comprehensive guide hitting everything that's in these books, which means that there's always more to explore and more to write. And part of, of writing my book was giving, hopefully inspiring, especially younger readers who are so have so much energy and want to look into those things is that if they read this and think, ah, oh, this is so cool. This is, this is really interesting. And they start noticing more things and hopefully they'll go write out go out and write more books about it. Cause there's not many out oh, there and right. there's always more to say. So well, I want to see more say, people. 
I'm, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, go uh, ahead. Besides your book, I only know of two other works of really solely dedicated to the Ransom Trilogy. One by a guy named Jared Lobdell. Uh, I don't know if that's the proper way of pronouncing his name, but but he was the first one that I ever had seen who had written a book uh, just about the Space Trilogy. And it was very interesting. Uh, and then David Downing has written one as well. Yes. So you're the third. I, I'm sure there may be more mm-hmm. out there, but there's not a lot. Yes. Well, that, then that's one reason, um, one thing that inspired uh, my book was I was doing my undergraduate thesis on the Ransom Trilogy, and it was a shorter, shorter thesis. It was more argumentative. I was making a specific point that um, a lot of that ended up in the book, but I was particularly focused on comparing the Ransom Trilogy to Dante's Divine Comedy and how Lewis... Um, kind of shifts things around and does this kind of inverse parallel um, in order to resolve a particular tension that he uh, saw in the medieval uh, cosmology. And so I was kind of focusing in, narrowing in on that. And in all my research on it, that was one of the things that I came across was there's not a whole lot out there. I pretty much read everything I could get my hands on. And what I did read I would, you know, there's definitely information, helpful information that I gleaned, but I didn't always actually agree 100% with some of the conclusions or what their focus was. I feel some some of the things I read I felt did fall into the the pit of focusing on it as a science fiction book when I and I wanted it to it's like it's actually more of a medieval book <laughs> in a lot right. of ways there's there's way more medieval and um, renaissance imagery and drawing from Dante and um, Chaucer and all of these these great medieval renaissance poets that um, way more inspired it than shall we say you know any of our modern science science fiction uh, writers so I wasn't really finding much that was exactly what I was looking for. And on top of that, I wasn't really finding anything that I could point people to when they asked me, why are you writing about those books? They are so weird. <laughs> They're so weird. and I don't understand them. And I, I, there wasn't really a handy guide really that I could say, go read this book. It'll help. And yeah. so when it, when it came time, I, I went to grad school after that and it came time for my grad thesis. I thought, well, maybe my project should be a reader guide, fill that gap, try to really? use what I've learned in the undergrad and go further and deeper and continue to develop this and, and actually write something that I would give those people that were asking that question. It's like, why, why this, why is it important? What is he doing? What's the point? And so it's like, that's kind of what happened was I was coming across not enough that was satisfactory <laughs> to me. So I decided to go for it myself. Well, I'm very glad that you did because, uh, again, the, the, the amount of literature on this is sparing. Mm-hmm. And so, so we need more. And something that you mentioned that, that I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about it, uh, are the influences on Lewis mm-hmm. that, that are shown in this work. So you, you've mentioned Dante a couple of times. Of course, 
uh, Lewis wrote The Great Divorce, which is, that was my, my first uh, coming across his appreciation for Dante and the, the Divine Comedy. But you, know, you talk about that in, in your book as well. So, so tell us a little bit more about Dante and how uh, Lewis reflects his writing and also how he, he takes care of some of the tensions that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so Dante, I mean, just as a poet, Lewis thought he was pretty much as good as it gets. <laughs> he was the, the top of the top. He, even as an unbeliever, he remembers reading um, Paradiso and just being completely in awe of how, how amazing it was. And obviously there, there it's, it's very interesting because he would have read it in the original Italian, which, you know, obviously begs the question of how good are our translations? <laughs> you know, so I think obviously there are some that are better than others. I've read a, a couple translations and I definitely have my favorite that I, I realized it was one of the first experiences I remember having where I truly realized how important translation is. So there's one piece of it. Adv- who would that be? Um, I I actually really loved um, Mark Musa's translation. Okay. Um, I did read Dorothy Sayers, um, at least some, and, and it's impressive what she does. I don't know that it always works um, because Dorothy Sayers, her, her translation attempts to keep the rhyme scheme and the meter of the original, which is very difficult to do um, because Italian is very easy to rhyme in. <laughs> Um, it is, right. and um, right. it's very difficult in English, so sometimes it can feel a little bit forced, and I think it does lose, I, I, I mean, I don't know Italian, I know bits and pieces, I know Latin, um, so there's some similarities that I can that I can pick out, um, but I, I remember her translation just losing me sometimes, and so then um, Mark Musa's uh, translation, I really enjoyed, that was when I kind of understood what Lewis was talking about, or at least felt like I grasped some some of it. So there's always that. It's, I think it'd be amazing to be able to learn these language, all of these languages, to just read the original um, in the original language. But for those of us who are mere mortals and and only know um, you know one or a couple languages and can't read everything in the original, we have to to resort to translations. And so I think. That's just a side note is if you're having a hard time with a particular translated work, try a different translation. Might be the translation, not the actual work itself. Um, I've had that experience a few times with different books and realized, oh, I think it might just be the translation. So so that's a little side note. Um, so we know that you know Lewis just thought Dante was was an excellent poet. And then, but on top of that, there's the content of, you know, not just his poetry, the artistic um, excellence of his poetry itself, but the content that I think Lewis um, found fascinating and interesting. And also, again, a vision of a time period where that was an acceptable view of reality, right? This isn't, uh, or not even acceptable, but just this is a view of reality. These things actually do exist. There is a place called hell that really does exist and um, purgatory and paradise. And these aren't just, it's not just an allegory. Um, It is an allegory to a certain extent, but that's not what the medievals would have viewed it as. And so I think Lewis um, enjoyed that and was fascinated by that as well, which we see um, 
portrayed in a lot of his works. You mentioned The Great Divorce, which is a very clear, uh, clear parallel as well. Um, and then, so, so then you mentioned the tension. So there's, there is a tension in the medieval cosmology, um, specifically as it concerns the Christian faith, because there is this uh, perspective of mankind being at the bottom of the cosmos. So um, once again, kind of comparing to our view of space, you know, we think of space as just vast and infinite every direction, right? We're, we're on this tiny planet kind of suspended in the middle. We're surrounded on all sides by emptiness. Whereas the medieval cosmology would see the cosmos almost more like a tower, right? Where it's a, it, there's height to it, not just infinite in every direction, but there's an up and down sense. So when the medieval man would look up out at the night sky, he is looking up out at the night sky. He's almost like you're looking up the side of a great cathedral. It's this towering, vast, built, shaped, formed, beautiful uh, vault, right? Vault of heavens. That's a saying also from, from older poets. And so mankind is sent at the center of this uh, cosmos, um, but we're also at the lowest point. And that kind of plays into a little bit of a, of a confusion about uh, the whole Galileo episode, right? Um, I think it's a pretty common story that, oh, the church was so anti-science that they, you know, they kind of ran Galileo out of town because he dared to say that the earth was not at the center. But uh, that was more a problem with the church having capitulated to science in the first place, not so much that they were so cared about the theology of man being central and important because mankind being central is actually not important. Um, if you remember from Dante's Divine Comedy, the, what's at the center of the earth is hell, and what's right. at the center of hell is Satan himself, down at the very right. down at the very bottom. And Virgil, when he goes down, uh, Virgil leading Dante down, you, know, you keep going further down and down and down. Um, so that is the central part point is not the most important. You know, we say that now, it's a very modern way of talking. You, you think you're the center of the universe. Oh, you're saying I think I'm Satan. <laughs> you know, we don't say that. Uh, we think center of the universe means most important. The medieval saw center of the universe as actually the lowest, most humble, right. most wretched position. We are the bottom of the well, basically, we're the dregs yes. of the universe. And so the tension comes in, though, basically with the Christian faith and the incarnation, because Christ took on human flesh and became a man, and we are created in God's image. There is an essential dignity and importance um, to mankind. So we're both the least important and by virtue of uh, Christ becoming man and taking on human flesh, we're also the most important. Um, right. We are, you know, we are now, we flipped things on it, on their heads. There's this tension now, which I think Lewis mentions in the discarded image as hitting a discordant note in an otherwise harmonious picture of the cosmos. So I think the Ransom Trilogy in part is kind of his effort to harmonize things that they never quite managed to harmonize in their own okay. view of, of the cosmos. That is very interesting. And, and, and I hope that our listeners will, that this will, will just be a little foretaste that will whet their appetites mm -hmm. for that. Because that is a, a, a very unique perspective. And again, oftentimes when we think of cosmology, we think of it only as being out there, you know, what 
all the stuff that that's above us but cosmology includes what is below us as well mm-hmm. so you know like with dante and of course you know in uh, purgatorio they were actually i mean it, it's a mountain mm-hmm. that, that where, where they're going so anyway th- there's th- there's this escalation and and again we could uh, i would love to talk about <laughs> Dante with you, so we need to not do that either. <laughs> but you know, so uh, we'll we'll probably kind of just uh, come to somewhat of a beginning of the end here, but by looking mm-hmm. at the last of the three novels. Uh, so you have Out of the Silent Planet, where we are introduced to Ransom. And and by the way, is it true that that ransom is based at least partially on J.R. Tolkien? You know, that's that's a good question. I I don't know if I'm entirely convinced. I I haven't really found. I mean, it's never explicitly said. I don't think Lewis ever comes out and says he's he's entirely based. I think he's inspired a little bit. He is a philologist, you know. So there's that that link there. And Tolkien was obviously very. Uh, essential in the whole uh, start of the trilogy because it actually started out as a challenge between Tolkien and Lewis that they were going to each write, you know, more of the stories that they both liked. And so Lewis was going to write a space travel story and Tolkien would write a time travel story, which he started, but never finished. Um, my opinion is typical. probably because he was, he, yeah, pretty typical. He's being too, too particular <laughs> probably. And, and of course, Lewis, didn't write just one he wrote three and a whole trilogy so that was also right. kind of typical uh overachiever <laughs> there right. but um so i i wouldn't be surprised if he is in part inspired by by tolkien but there are i think especially as you read more through the trilogy there's not a whole lot of personality overlap i don't feel from what right. i've read of tolkien and and their tolkien and lewis's relationship and interactions and um I feel like Ransom is probably inspired by, but very quickly departs from that template, shall we say. Right. He, he, he adopts, well, he has more of Arthur, King Arthur to him mm. by the end. Yes, certainly. yeah. Which is another, you know, yet another element that, that strongly influenced Lewis. And you can see it mostly in that hideous strength. So, so go ahead. Yes, I, well, I was just going to say I was agree, totally agree with you on that, and um, it is fascinating. I would love, you could write a whole book on this, but That His Strength was the book written after Lewis became very good friends with Charles Williams, yes. who is an Arthurian scholar, and um, so I think that that dramatically affected um, the kind of the mythology, if you will, of of that third book. Um, there's way more heavy, there's a much more heavy Arthurian influence in that third book than in the first two. And I do think it it makes sense. It actually does flow well. And that's another thing that I talk about in uh, Deeper Heaven, because one of the obvious questions is what in the world is Merlin doing (laughs) in a space story? I mean, right. We have these three books and it's called commonly called the space trilogy. He goes to the, to outer space. He goes to two planets in the first two books. And then suddenly in the third book, where we stay on earth and all the planets come down and then we have Merlin and we have a bear and we have animals everywhere and what is going on. And I do think 
there is a very clear connection between Merlin and the uh, the planets and the medieval cosmology that I talk about in, I dedicate a chapter to it in my books that is, that's really, really neat when you think about it. Cause that was one of the things I set out. I set out to solve. I want to figure out, okay, there has to be a reason that Merlin is there. That it's more than just Merlin is cool and he's connected to Arthurian legend. And, you know, Lewis loves Charles Williams and was inspired and just wanted Merlin there. I think Lewis is more purposeful than that. He is accused of being slapdash by many, including Tolkien, um, and, sure. you know, and quick and just throwing things in, but he doesn't do things for no reason. Uh, he, I don't think he ever, I've never found something where I haven't after some careful thought seen the purpose behind why he included that. And so I, I really wanted to look at Merlin and I, I mean, I don't, I think there's more to be said and definitely other perspectives that could be offered. But um, I do think it's fascinating once you see what Lewis has to say about Merlin elsewhere um, and how that all kind of connects and, and comes, comes into focus. Well, I, for one, am very thankful for Lewis's relationship with Charles mm -hmm. Williams even though I'm not sure that I myself would have wanted to have a relationship with <laughs> Charles Williams, but I'm thankful that Lewis did because again, the platonic imagery that, that, that Williams has in his novels, like the place of the lion uh, in, for one, the, and, and the spiritual warfare that Williams does a really good job in presenting is all over that hideous strength. Mm -hmm. And it is that element of spiritual warfare that grabbed me when I when we first read the book together. I, I can remember being excited because our, our, our oldest daughter, who is now 11, she was just a few months old. And I remembered being excited when we would put her to bed at night because then we would have about an hour or so to read that hideous strength. And because it was so energizing. Mm -hmm. and, and I remember telling Amanda, my wife, I, I feel like he has a grasp on spiritual warfare that I had no idea C.S. Lewis had a grasp about it to this degree. But, but so, I mean, but, but it yeah. was because of, again, the influences he had. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but this is your book. This is this is not mine, and I'm just talking. So, but, but oh no, I, that's great. You, 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 but here's the here's one thing I will say about your book, though. It for me inspires me to think more about what I'm reading, mm -hmm. and it motivates me to ponder, not just. You don't just give simple answers and say, this is what you should think about X, but you present it in a way that makes the reader want to think about C.S. Lewis's work. And sadly for me, this it, it's a, neglect, a, a neglected trilogy. So I'm very thankful mm -hmm. that you do that. Well, thank you. That's that's really encouraging to hear, and I I really appreciate it. That's that is one thing that I think I was trying to to purposefully do. One thing I appreciate about C.S. Lewis and his writing is um, 
how just he's very accessible in his writing, particularly his academic or instructive, you know, more scholarly work is that it's not dry and boring. And I mean, it's still very much Lewis. He has that personal flavor to his writing that he's very um, easy to understand. He feels like he's right there in the room talking to you. And even when he's explaining things, he's not doing it in a patronizing or um, sort of simplistic way. He is pushing you to think and question. And I think that's, that's a sign often a sign of a good teachers. I mean, as teachers, we, you know, that is my day job as a teacher, um, high school, junior high, junior high students, you, you need to learn how to do this. And it's very, it's very hard to do. And I'm still learning how to do it myself in the classroom. But that is, we're guiding students to ask questions and find answers, not just, we're not just handing them information on a platter and say, okay, memorize all of this. I mean, there's always time and a place to memorize things. There is information that needs to be memorized. But the whole point of that is to encourage them to, to think and to ask those important questions and then to learn how to find the answers and how to question things and, and keep digging deeper. And so that is one thing that I was trying to implement in the book itself is both Lewis's sort of kind of pastoral, but in a, not in a patronizing way, you know, it's just, is, is, is right. giving this information in a way that is encouraging to people, hopefully immediately useful, but also um, inspiring to further reading and further study and thinking about um, hopefully more books than just Lewis's book, but thinking more deeply and asking those sorts of questions. Where does, this sort of thing come from? Where does this kind of writer come from? What are the assumptions that he has and, and what has shaped and molded him? And maybe we should try to try to return to some of that, um, those inspirations there that have been long neglected. Yes. Well, thank you very much uh, for, for, for this. This has been very uh, helpful. And, and again, I encourage everyone to, to buy the book. It's available from Roman Roads Media. Uh, it's also, of course, uh, like almost everything else on Amazon, <laughs> but it, it's Deeper Heaven, A Reader's Guide to C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. And, and so thank you very much, uh, Christiana. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love getting to talk about Lewis anytime. <laughs> Thank you.